Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. It is August in D.C., which means it is both quiet and hot. And somehow I am still stuck in the office. I don't know about you guys, but I am Michelle Bishop and I am one third of our hosting team here on the podcast. I'm the voter access and engagement manager at NDRN. And I'm Stephanie Flint, one of our public policy analysts at NDRN. And fun fact, on the Metro this morning, I drank 19 ounces of iced coffee in 19 minutes. That is so problematic. And I'm Raquel Rosa. I am the community relations specialist at NDRN. And sadly, my mom still does not listen to the podcast, but I know somebody's mom who does. Oh, that's right. We got an email from the one and only Carol Bishop, our favorite longest running listener, or at least we thought, because it turns out she just started listening to our podcast a few months ago. And I will say this, when we were contacted by my mother, she did not contact us to compliment how good of a job I do on this podcast. She specifically said to make sure Jack, our producer, knows what a good job he's doing on the podcast. So thanks for that, Mama. But Jack, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the people? And hi, this is producer Jack Rosen. This month, we're talking about ADA access and hotels. What brought this topic on is the pending Supreme Court case, Aitchison Hotels versus Lawfer. This is a dispute between a hotel corporation and an ADA tester. So what is an ADA tester and what's at stake in this case? Well, listen to today's episode and we'll be discussing all of that and more. We're also having on Julia Metro, a journalism fellow at Mother Jones, who wrote an article about this case and talks about that article, the broader issue, and her experiences as a person with a disability in journalism. Additionally, we have on our own Amy Shearer, who talks about traveling as a person with a disability. And finally, we have on Michelle Uzetta from Dreda, who helps dispel some of the myths that the hotel lobby are putting forward about ADA accessibility. Whoa, that is an action-packed episode. All right, well, let's get right into it then. Well, friends, today we are joined by Julia Metro. She is a fellow at Mother Jones. Thanks for joining us today, Julia. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. So I was hoping that you could talk to us about how this case first came to your attention. Yeah, so this case came to my attention. I had covered a previous Supreme Court case, uh, the nursing home one, and someone in the disability community, uh, Rebecca Coakley, had messaged me asking if I was paying attention to the tester case. And I had not been paying attention yet. So she nicely brought it to my attention. And that's how I personally learned about it. I'm really glad that, you know, that this is getting um, some good coverage. I know that, you know, in reading your article, um, it does um, kind of, you know, when it comes to the business community, that individuals with disabilities are over overly litigious. Um, but do you feel like that's a reflection of how our system is currently working when it comes to the ADA enforcement? Or or what what's your take on that? I would say my take falls into a few different categories. The first is, as we know, the United States is a very capitalistic country. So I, it's not that surprising that many of our systems also work in that way. And I have to say a bit about myself. I'm what you call an ADA baby. So I was born after the ADA came into play. When I think about the ADA, especially with Title III, when you hear these lawsuits, one of the first things that comes to mind is like with all things, they're the exceptions that prove the rule, right? 
But that doesn't mean everyone else is like that, or even a majority are. I also think another thing that's important to keep in mind is it's not fun to file complaints or lawsuits when you're not being welcomed or able to access communities, stores, etc. It can be very almost humiliating. It could be annoying. As I mentioned in my article, it can also be very, very bad. For example, if a private hospital doesn't have web accessibility on their site, then people aren't able to read a message from their doctor. If they're using a screen reader, for example, or they might have or they might struggle to get into a store. I think with this case in particular, it's also one of those Supreme court cases where it could have a greater effect than just the initial lawsuit and rulings itself. And also like Doran Dorfman told me that there has been a long history of using testers in this country and it also is currently used under the Department of Justice. So I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind. Yeah, you know, I really appreciate you bringing the attention to claims um, and filing um, filing claims and, and lawsuits in particular, um, those those particular things in in your article. It's something that, you know, I mean, for starters, litigation takes a lot of time, right? Like, I don't think anybody wakes up and goes, oh, yeah, I'm going to file a lawsuit because it's going to be, you know, my quickest way to resolve uh, these issues, um, you know, and, and I feel like, you know, of course, going back to the screen reader thing, which I am a screen reader user, I'm a blind person, as most of our um, listeners know. Um, but yeah, I mean, there there are times when certain websites might not be the most accessible, especially if you're filing a, com- a complaint with a company in terms of the accessibility, or even just the fact that there are some people, a lot of people actually, um, you know, being a uh, a minority group who is uh, disproportionately affected by, um, you know, being low income and, and poverty, a lot of people don't realize that they can file complaints and that they can do it. And also, too, you know, taking into consideration the spoons aspect of it mm-hmm. or, you know, um, have feeling like that you can do this mentally. I can tell you right now that I've definitely had some complaints that I am like, I know I need to file this. I know I need to file this, but I just do not have the mental energy um, to do that. So thank you so, so much for bringing attention, you know, um, to that. So have there been um, any surprising Um, you know, in the business community, um, when it comes to complaints, um, when you were looking into this case, um, you know, for example, um, the client Eastwood's case, did you, did you see anything in particular, um, that kind of stood out to you? Any claims that were in particularly surprising? Yeah. So when it came to the Clint Eastwood case, that's a great thing about having great sources. Um, Doran Dorfman brought that case to my attention. I did not know about it previously. And in the wording of in what Eastwood said after he had defeated the case was somewhat along the line that I'm standing up for the little guy and all these things. It's like, wait, you have so much money and you're not exactly a little guy here. I think that it's important to knowledge that some people could just be doing a lot better and maybe don't care. I also think when it comes to this specific Supreme Court case that there might be some small businesses that might not genuinely be up 
to par when it comes to everything you need to do for ADA accessibility. For example, that includes which this Supreme Court case involves is having to have accessibility information on your website. Just going back a bit to the case, there was something cited in the case where one of the hotels said, sorry, we don't do ADA accessibility here or something on the lines, which is a complete joke. It's a 30 plus year old civil rights law. You can't just say you don't do it. But there might be some companies that might not know that you need to put ADA accessibility information on the site and not just as it pertains to, let's just say, making it accessible for screen readers, maybe using a background of a site and text that has good contrast. So I think there needs to be more work. And I think a lot of advocates say the same, both in the disability community and the small business community of awareness of what needs to be done and what should be done, because really that benefits everyone. And like we've been talking Talking about filing lawsuits and following them through takes time. This was a Title II case, I believe. But another one is I'm a recent graduate of UC Berkeley graduate school. And last fall, there was like a years long investigation. And I believe the state or the county, someone in the DOJ had gone after UC Berkeley for not using either captions or having a transcript available on online material. That took years. If a student themselves had gone after the school for that, they would maybe be chasing that long after they graduated. And that's just an example of like how frustratingly long it could be. But yeah, hope that answers the question well. Yeah, absolutely. And again, thank you so much. I, I like that you um, brought up the fact that they are definitely still businesses, including hotels, um, that for one reason or another... I guess, you know, sometimes it's their staff that are trained who are like, oh, well, we don't have to comply with this. And I'm like, yeah, you actually do. And then, you know, there may be some which, um, you know, I've discussed with um, an, another person who's going to be featured a little bit later in this episode. I won't spoil it too much, but, you know, there, there was a particular hotel um, that was not accessible, um, not physically accessible, and there was no way that it was going to be physically accessible. And this is stuff that's, you know, happened in recent years. And you're just like, these people need to get with the program. Mm -hmm. um, but all that to say, of course, I don't want to take up the entire podcast. So Raquel, I know you had a few other questions. I sure did. So switching gears, Julia, I was hoping you can speak with us about your thoughts on how the media could do a better job of covering issues that affect people with disabilities. One of the first things I'm going to say is hire disabled reporters and also talk to disabled people, not just non-disabled people around them. I came to covering this because of my connection to the disability community and also being an openly disabled reporter. I think that just looking at the world around us and talking to people is super helpful. I also, I'm not going to call it X, but disability Twitter is still there still talking about many inaccessibility issues and inequities. And I think that something that 
it's important to keep in mind and could also perhaps maybe be a bit frustrating in the 24-7 news cycle is that sometimes disabled sources need more time to schedule an interview and all that things. And I get that. I'm a chronically ill reporter. I definitely feel like I'm running on a hamster wheel. And that's part of the own pressure I put on myself, not really pressure anyone puts on me. But yeah, running work in crypt time doesn't always align with the media. And I think that planning ahead and all that is super helpful and also giving time. And unfortunately, we see, I say unfortunately, but sometimes it could be fortunately too, a lot of these cases and all that are playing out in courts right now. Um, I think it's very interesting. I say this also someone who is high risk for COVID-19 complications, ADA cases that pertain to COVID safe working conditions, we are just seeing how it's starting to play out, including safety in hospitals. Thank you. I think it needs to be said again that the best way or one of the best ways that the media could enhance their coverage of disability specific issues is to actually engage with the disability community. Um, I certainly, uh, there are countless articles I've read where the The folks being interviewed are indeed the folks around people with disabilities. So I think we need to be a lot more uh, intentional about telling people stories with their voices. Uh, I think you you completely hit the nail on the head there. Uh, So this kind of segues into my next question. You identify, of course, as a journalist with a disability. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about your personal experiences in this professional space. Yeah, so I, a little bit nerdy, I started doing journalism in high school. I was born with a mild to moderate hearing loss, but that didn't really shape my career when it was starting. I had to leave undergrad. I was very sick with an undiagnosed autoimmune disorder, and that brought me into health reporting and by adjacent disability reporting. Not that other people weren't doing disability reporting. There definitely were and continue to be amazing fellow disability reporters, but it's really a growing beat. And so when I was both as a freelancer before and during grad school, I was like, okay, I want to pursue this as a beat. And that is one of the things that I'm hoping to be able to continue to do at Mother Jones. Julia, can you share with us where we can follow your work? Yes. I am on Twitter until the very end. I am also recently joined Blue Sky and I'm also on Instagram. I also have a somewhat unusual last name. So if you Google me, there's only two Julia Metros in the world and the other one has like no digital footprint. So it's pretty easy to find me. Well, thank you, Julia, on behalf of the entire podcast team, on behalf of the PA Network and NDRN. Thank you for sharing your insight and experience with us. This has been just very uh, enlightening and uh, revitalizing, I think, uh, to just consider the the breadth of issues that are before us. So thank you so, so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Like I said, disability reporting is definitely a growing beat. And Many of us are definitely trudging along, and I really hope to see more disability reporting as the years go along. 
All righty. So we actually have a super special treat this month for our spotlight story here on the PandaPod. Uh, we have Amy Scherer, who is uh, one of our colleagues here at NDRN. She is the senior staff attorney um, who works on vocational rehabilitation. Um, and I'll let her introduce herself to the people real quick before we get into all things wheelchair access and hotels. Hello, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you, Stephanie, uh, for having me. And I'm really excited to be able to talk about um, such an important issue as hotel accessibility. Uh, I'm very interested in it professionally, but also personally as a wheelchair user. So I look forward to talking with everyone. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, just to kind of kick us off a little bit, I know that, you know, a lot of people don't always think about um, accessibility when it comes to hotel rooms and the various types of accessibility um, that that there are. You know, there, there are rooms that are um, specifically designed for folks who are deaf who stay in them. There are, of course, you know, the wheelchair accessible rooms. But, you know, I know that there are definitely times when you may be given a totally different accessible room that doesn't meet your accessibility needs or even just a non-accessible room entirely. So I would love for you to share a story with our listeners about a time a time when that has happened to you. I'm assuming you've got some stories. I definitely do. I probably have a bunch that I could pick from, but um, I will start with this one um, primarily because it was fairly recently um, and it did uh, really put a crimp in the plans that I had. Um, so we were staying in a hotel um, in this area in the Washington, D.C., Virginia, Maryland area. And we had specifically requested um, a wheelchair accessible room, um, confirmed reservation, and had requested a roll-in shower um, instead of a tub, which works better for me. And when we got to the hotel room, uh, to the hotel, they actually did not have um, an ADA wheelchair accessible room. They did not have a room that had grab bars, which again is another usually standard part of an ADA wheelchair accessible room, and they did not have a roll-in shower either. So it wasn't even that someone else was in the room that didn't need it. Uh, they literally did not have a room that met the specifications that we had requested, even though, like I said, we had a confirmed reservation. So that was a big issue. And I guess on the good side, there was a solution, but it was not an easy solution. The hotel had another chain um, located about 10 to 15 miles away from where we currently were. And they offered us the opportunity to take an accessible room in that location instead of where we were. And it did work out. Uh, but it really was a major inconvenience because we had to get back in the car and drive 10 or 15 miles in traffic to go to the other location, get out of the car again, unpack everything and uh, repeat the process. So uh, the second room did work and it did uh, meet the needs of what uh, we were looking for, but it was really a pain that we had to go to an entirely different location than the hotel that we had initially chosen. Wow, that's definitely a unique experience. I've definitely heard a lot about folks, you know, of course, very important, um, you know, the hotels having these accessible rooms and then folks requesting them. And then, you know, the 
uh, people not getting them. But I don't think that until today that I've heard of a hotel, at least in this day and age, because I, I know that we had talked a little bit before, and it sounds like this story was relatively recent, um, uh, you know, a hotel that just didn't have um, an accessible room at all. That That's bananas. It was it was very surprising, and um, like you said, especially for me uh, because it was within the last three years. So it's not something that you know I, I really even think about so much in twenty twenty three that that something like that could happen. Um, I think in general, I would say my experience has improved dramatically from you know the last ten to fifteen years to now in terms of hotels being more. Um, more tuned into that type of thing and more something like that would not be that likely to happen, but it did. So So when we were getting ready to do this interview, you mentioned to us that, you know, it's not just not having an accessible room, but sometimes the rooms designated are as accessible actually aren't because of some of the design choices they've made. Sure. I'll be glad to talk about that. Um, and um, I think it's important to say, first of all, before I explain some of the issues that I understand that, you know, when they're making a wheelchair accessible um, room, they're trying to make it work for as many people as possible who use wheelchairs. And of course, we all come in different shapes and sizes. So that can be challenging. But even with that in mind, sometimes they really do fail in um, creating something that's going to work for someone who is a wheelchair user or non-ambulatory. So um, the three examples that I run into quite a bit are, first of all, the height of hotel beds. Um, I guess it's important to note that I am about four feet, nine inches tall. So I'm definitely on the shorter end of things, which makes it a little bit more complicated. But I have been a little bit um, dismayed by the trend in the last eight to 10 years at almost all hotel chains to have higher beds. I'm not sure why that became more attractive or more um, aesthetically pleasing, but uh, there was definitely an overall shift um, to having really high hotel beds on platforms and um, being a shorter person and then a person who's trying to transfer from a seated position onto a high bed, it can be very, very difficult to the point where with the way that a lot of hotel rooms are right now with the bed situation, I'm not able to travel independently because I honestly cannot do the transfer from a lower wheelchair to a high bed on my own. So that has been a big issue. And um, I have seen in recent years on the plus side, or very recently, I would say even just within the last year, having a bit more of a choice if you ask that there might be a lower bed option um, and a higher bed option, both within the wheelchair accessible room blocks. Um, so I do suggest if that's an issue for anyone else listening to this, um, maybe ask about that and you might, might get a little bit lucky um, and there may be a lower bed uh, available for you. The other issue kind of again related to height is the height of the sink. Again, it's very important, obviously, if you're a wheelchair user, that the wheelchair fit underneath the sink so that your knees are not hitting the, the the sink when you're trying to go underneath it and you can get nice and close to the sink. But they have gone pretty uh, far in making the sinks really high 
um, maybe overcompensating for the fact that they want to make sure that the wheelchair can fit underneath the sink. And that can create issues for those of us who are shorter, not being able to actually reach the sink itself. Or even if I can reach the sink, I usually cannot reach the faucet. Uh, to turn the water on and off, which obviously, again, negates the ability to be able to use the um, sink independently. So um, it's one of those situations where I think, again, they are building the sink and maybe they're meeting the letter of the law or within the letter of the law, but they are not thinking about it from a practical standpoint and perhaps did not have somebody in a wheelchair actually try to use this um, before they finished building it. Um, another example of that would be the shower. I typically tend to use a roll-in shower instead of a shower with a tub to make the transfer easier again, because there's usually a bench attached to the wall of the roll-in shower, which is great. And those transfers are usually not, not that hard to do. Um, this is this is not a situation where there's a height issue, but you can you can only sit on the bench that's attached to the wall. You cannot move it around because it is not it's attached it's literally attached to the wall. And so the problem there is sometimes where the bench is is on one wall, and then the shower head where the water would be coming out is on the complete opposite wall. So there's absolutely no way if you're sitting on the bench that you could reach um, the shower head. And in some cases, it's so far away that even if you went to turn the water on first and then transferred to the bench after you turned on the water, uh, the water does not reach, the spray of the water will not reach far enough to actually get you wet if you're sitting on the shower bench. And um, that is very frustrating. It's amazing how many times that happens, um, even, you know, in current day. And uh, again, I think that's a situation where they're not thinking about the fact that the person who's sitting on the shower bench attached to the wall uh, might not be able to move or stand up or get to the other end of the shower to um, to turn it on. So that's, again, where practical situations are not really the practical impact is not really being factored in when they create the design for the shower. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that I'm so glad that you pointed out, you know, the fact that people do come in different shapes and different sizes. You know, uh, the truth of the matter is, is while it sounds like these folks, or at least I like to believe that people who are designing these have very good intentions and want to make these things accessible. But if you're not consulting directly with disabled people, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, you know, when I say this for all six of our listeners to the podcast. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's so, so, so important that you consult with disabled people because the truth of the matter is that things like these were, were not all the same. We're not all going to be five foot six and use a wheelchair. And so when it comes to those types of modification, we need to make sure that this accessibility is kept in mind, you know, from the onset as opposed to an afterthought or even just not exist entirely. I couldn't agree more. I think you said that perfectly. And that really is an important part of the process. And it would be great too if, if um, you know, going forward, I guess, especially some 
focused on the employment aspect of things. I would love to see wheelchair users and other people with disabilities actually enter um, the architectural field more often or the interior design field so that you would have that perspective um, built in to the people who are actually designing the program, designing the the hotel room. Absolutely. Well, Amy, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the Panda Pod. Thank you so, so, so much for sharing your story and sharing your insight. I know that I found it super valuable. And I know that our listeners are also, you know, have found this super valuable as well. So thank you again for being willing to to chat with us today for a few minutes. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to do it. And I think a lot of it, like you said, is that people have good intentions and a lot of it is just not necessarily being aware of the issues. Um, so I, I love to participate in anything that is going to help to raise awareness because I think that's the key to changes being made. So hopefully um, that will continue to happen. And finally joining us, we have Michelle Uzetta. She is the Deputy Legal Director at the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund, also known as DREDF. She has specialized in civil rights law since 1993, with a particular emphasis on disability rights and fair housing litigation. Michelle has years of experience working in private practice and has previously served as the Legal Director of the Disability Rights Legal Center, the Litigation Director at the Southern California Housing Rights Center, and an Associate Managing Attorney at Disability Rights California. Michelle's practice has focused on the litigation of high-impact lawsuits and representation of individuals facing discrimination under the Americans with Disabilities Act, Section 504, Fair Housing Amendments Act, and related state laws. In addition to her role as litigator, Michelle has lectured and written extensively on the legal rights of people with disabilities and has authored a number of amicus briefs on disability rights issues. Michelle is a graduate of Stanford University and has earned her JD from King Hall School of Law at the University of California, Davis. And shout out to Disability Rights California and Disability Rights Hawaii, as Michelle worked there too. And to kick off our questions, I'm gonna kick it over to our other Michelle, Michelle Bishop. Great minds we find are often named Michelle. So it's not a surprise. Michelle, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, I was wondering if you could kick us off by telling us about Title III of the ADA and what mechanisms we have for enforcement of its provisions. Uh, Sure. Thank, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, is a comprehensive federal law that prohibits discrimination based on disability. And the way that the law is set up, it has uh, what they call titles, which are like chapters in a book. And Title Three is the chapter that uh, prohibits discrimination by private businesses. Um, otherwise called sometimes uh, public places of public accommodation. So that's the title that um, we're, we're really focusing on at the current time, because that enforcement of people's rights under Title III are under attack. Um, the ADA is enforced in two primary ways. The first is through the government. And here I'm talking about both the federal and local governments uh, that enforce state laws that are similar to the ADA. And then through private individuals who ex have experienced discrimination, the ADA is a remedial law. Uh, it was enacted to remedy a history of discrimination. And as such, it was specifically written to include a private right of action, which means that people with disabilities whose rights are violated can seek relief in court. And Congress made private enforcement the primary method of obtaining compliance with the ADA 
simply because there's so many businesses uh, that are in the United States. Uh, it would be impossible for the Department of Justice or federal government to enforce the law as to all of those businesses. So the ADA is over 30 years old at this point. How is it going? How's enforcement going? Absolutely. Is it working? Um, it's hard to say. Uh, I've been practicing disability law for 30 years. So I came onto the scene right around the time that the ADA has. And I haven't really seen violations slow down, which is unfortunate. Um, I'd say that enforcement is ongoing and consistent. It has to be because discrimination doesn't rest. Um, enforcement also really depends on the administration in office and their priorities, whether disability rights or civil rights generally are within their priorities and what the resources are. Um, both financial resources that are being put into enforcement efforts and staffing. Um, I'll, I'll note that there was a progress report done by the National Council on Disability published in 2019 that revealed consistently declining budget levels and a 24% drop in staffing for the Civil Rights Division, which is the division that focuses on disability rights, uh, between 2010 and 2018. There's no more recent data, but those kind of cuts or drops in resources and staffing are concerning because enforcement can't happen um, when your resources are declining and there's no staff dedicated to doing enforcement. So in that kind of context, it's even more important that people with disabilities in the community uh, be permitted to enforce their rights and not have their right to bring actions based on the ADA infringed or restricted in any Anyway, so Michelle, pivoting over to um, hoteling while disabled, I was wondering if you could tell us some stories you've heard and examples you could share about this experience. Well, it really, it really runs the gamut, right? So you have people who are trying to use online reservation systems because most of the hotels use online reservation systems at this point, and they can't find any information about whether there are accessible rooms or accessible facilities, accessible parking, passive travel. And this is all information that the ADA requires hotels to include on their online reservation system. So people with disabilities can make reservations at the same times and with the same ease as people who do not have disabilities. So that's one kind of frustration that people experience. Um, a related frustration is you don't see the information about accessibility online, so you pick up the phone and you call, and the person on the other side of the line has no idea what you're talking about. Oftentimes, you're routed to a, a main reservation system that isn't on site at the particular hotel you're trying to get information on, and so they don't know. They aren't on site. They have no idea about the accessibility of the facilities. They can't give you the information. Uh, sometimes you call and you get, are given wrong information. You're told, oh, yeah, we have accessible rooms. Oh, yeah, you're, the room you're reserving is going to be accessible. And then it turns out not to be. And even when you make a reservation online and you're told that you have a accessible room guaranteed, and then you arrive on site after a long day of travel and you find out that the room that you reserved is not actually accessible. And this experience just happened to me recently. I have a family member uh, with mobility impairments who required a walk-in shower and an accessible restroom with grab bars, et cetera. 
um, reserved an accessible room online, confirmed the accessible room day before travel. When we arrived, we found out that the bathroom had a tub that was unusable by my family member. There were no grab bars and every, everything that had to be operated in the restroom required you to pinch and turn things, which my family member could not do due to their disabilities. Um, and this was the accessible room. And even after I pointed out that lack of accessible features, I was told, but that's the accessible room. So it is really difficult for people with disabilities when they travel. Um, it's really a crapshoot. You, you never know it, if you're going to actually get an accessible facility. And that's an added layer of stress on travel. Travels are always stressful for people, even when they go on vacations and things. The idea of traveling and not knowing where you're staying, if it's going to work for you, whether you'll be able to shower, that's just something that people shouldn't have to deal with. Michelle, can you tell us what's at stake? Why are we collecting these stories right now? So we're collecting these stories right now. Um, it's been a long, 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 hard fight against the business community to get them on board with not villainizing ADA plaintiffs and the disability community and to really refocus their efforts on educating their business members and letting them know about tax credits and other ways of making their businesses accessible, encouraging voluntary compliance with the law. Um, so we're collecting these stories to counter in large part, the business community's narratives that they're throwing out. Um, and it's at this particular time, because there's a, a case that I'm assuming we're going to talk about that's going to be argued before the Supreme Court in a couple of months. Um, so the business community has been really vigilant about villainizing people with disabilities and their attorneys and trying to take down the ADA, talking about how it needs reform and how it's so unfair to businesses who, uh, you know, want to comply but don't know how. Um, so, you know, we want to, I guess, humanize the issues uh, to let people know these are not minor inconveniences when you don't comply with ADA standards. The ADA standards are the bare minimum um, that the government decided provides accessibility. And oftentimes it's not enough to provide accessibility, but it is the bare minimum. And these standards have been around for 33 years. There's really, really no reason that people should not be complying with the law at this time. Um, and people just wait. They wait to get sued and then they complain about being sued. Um, they just don't want to make their businesses accessible. Um, and we do want people to tell the stories. We do want people to explain how uh, they're deterred from going out into the community. They're deterred from going out to dinner with their family. They're deterred from going on vacation because everything's inaccessible to them. And these are folks that the business community should want to have as customers. They have money to spend, um, but they they don't. They just don't see it. So there's this large disconnect, um, again, with, as I said before, people not getting how access impacts our community. Um, so we're trying to get the stories out to give a real, you know, real flavor and a face to these issues that we're complaining about. It's not just measuring inches and slopes. It's you're really impacting somebody's life when you don't make your business accessible. And there is a, a Supreme Court case around this. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Right. So in October, the Supreme Court is going to be hearing a case that deals with ADA enforcement. And it's called Atchison, which is the name of a hotelier. 
uh, versus Lawfer, Deborah Lawfer. Um, Deborah Lawfer is a person with physical disabilities. She uses a wheelchair and she has filed hundreds of cases against hotels nationwide for failing to comply with the ADA's requirement that hotels include certain accessibility information um, on their websites as part of their reservation system. Um, so Ms. Lawfer is what you would call a tester in these types of cases in that she doesn't have an immediate intent to visit the hotels she's suing, um, but rather she puts herself voluntarily in a situation to experience discrimination by visiting the hotel's websites to check for compliance with the requirement that they um, include accessibility information in their reservation system. And when the hotels don't have that information, she sues them. So they change their policies and they put the information there for the next person who visits the website to try to make a reservation and, and go on vacation and visit the hotel. Um, tester standing has been recognized and acknowledged in ADA cases for some times. And for um, in the context of fair housing and other civil rights cases for a very long time. Uh, but the courts at this point in time are split on whether ADA testing should be recognized in ADA cases, or sorry, whether testing should be recognized in ADA cases, and in particular under circumstances like Ms. Lawfer's, where she doesn't have an immediate intent to visit the hotels whose uh, reservation systems she's she's uh, visiting. Um, so we're arguing in that case, I mean, DREDF and other disability organizations are filing an amicus brief in the case. And actually our brief is going to be filed tomorrow. Um, and our brief is just providing a history of testing, uh, putting forth information about why testing is important in ADA enforcement and how private enforcement is really necessary to achieve the ADA's goals of access to the community. And we also are addressing the issue that someone like Ms. Lawfer, who's a tester, who puts themselves in a position to experience discrimination, does actually experience discrimination. And that discrimination causes dignitary harm. And that type of harm is something that gives her what they call standing or the ability, legal ability to file a lawsuit. Because um, when Ms. Lawfer visits these websites and sees that the information is not there, it sends a message to her and to other people with disabilities who visit the website, which is you don't belong here. You're not welcome at our hotel. We don't think that you're a customer that we need to, to encourage to come to our hotel um, you you just aren't wanted here. And that does cause dignitary harm. There's been a lot of studies about how uh, the marketplace and the welcome, how different things signal to people whether or not they are welcome and belong in the marketplace. And those aren't just physical things uh, like stairs or something like that, that would preclude somebody from entering, but also policies that tend to exclude people and not putting information that's required on your website is a policy that tells people with disabilities, we don't want you here. We don't care about you as a 
as a customer. So Michelle, can you tell us why, why should our, our listeners care? What's, what's really at stake here? Um, I would say that ADA enforcement is at stake. So the future of accessibility is at stake. I mean, if you consider the fact that businesses are still highly inaccessible, um, I would challenge anybody to just walk a couple of blocks or roll a couple of blocks and count the number of barriers that you encounter. Um, Inaccessibility is still widespread. We need people to challenge that inaccessibility. Uh, So if the courts are further narrowing who has the ability to enforce the law, we're just not going to have enforcement. And as we talked about a little bit earlier, government is ill-equipped to handle the sheer volume of inaccessibility that is out there. And businesses are not voluntarily complying with the law. Um, Testers are really, really important too. I I really want to stress that there's this narrative out there that people with disabilities are very willing and eager to file lawsuits. Um, And this is a, this is a false, false narrative. Uh, Litigation is difficult to bring. Cases are really, really stressful for people and they're expensive. There's filing fees, there's service fees, there's deposition uh, costs. There's a lot of costs that go into filing suit. And Title III of the ADA does not have a damages remedy. So you're not coming out of a lawsuit with money in your pocket. That just is not happening. There's no guarantee that you'll recover your attorney's fees. Uh, The Supreme Court has already ruled in another case that if a defendant moots out the case, meaning they remove the barrier right at the beginning of the case, they can move to have the case dismissed on the basis that there's no longer a dispute. And in that case, you don't get your fees. So you may go through the process of, you know, informally trying to get somebody to remove barriers. They don't do it. You file suit, you pay these costs to file your suit, and then they remove the barriers and, you know, take away your ability to recover your attorney's fees. And then you're actually out of pocket money. Um, So no one is beating down doors to be able to file enforcement actions. It's not something that the average person with disabilities wants to do. Um, And in addition to that, ADA plaintiffs and their counsel are often villainized and their motives are questioned, their characters are questioned. Um, That takes a toll on your mental health. Um, Businesses have become really, really indignant about being sued, even when they acknowledge that they have violated the law. They refer to cases as being meritless, as being frivolous. And when you really look at these cases, There are actual violations there. The cases are not meritless. They're not frivolous. Businesses are just really, really pissed off that people with disabilities are taking them to task for their ongoing failure to comply with the law. Um, So, yeah, you know, that's what's at (laughs) that's what's at risk. We have these few people, um, these serial litigants who are willing to take on the burden of ADA enforcement. And that's not to say that every serial litigant is a good guy. I mean, there are people out there who engage in what they would call bad faith litigation tactics or doing things that are not quite above board. But the majority of people who file numerous lawsuits are people who are actually trying to make a difference. Uh, They view themselves as advocates. They are advocates. Uh, And if they're doing things the right way, there's no reason why their serial litigation should be frowned upon. They're taking on the burden 
of enforcing the law for those of us who don't have uh, the means to do so. And they serve an important role uh, in the community to make the community more accessible for everybody. Thank you for spending time with us today. Thank you for fighting the good fight. Um, I think I speak for all of us when I say how much we appreciate you for being with us um, and being in solidarity with us. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, thank you to all of our guests. That was a really fascinating and informative episode of the podcast. And now for everyone's least favorite time of the month, Stephanie, tell us a joke. Don't you mean most favorite time of the month? That's absolutely what I meant to say. Sorry, verbal typo. Yeah, we need to, can you make sure to edit like her um, whole thing now? Okay. So for my joke this week, it's more of a story joke, but I'm not sure what category you guys want to um, want to utilize. So pick a category between fast food and department stores. I'm terrified. Raquel, make the decision. I'm saying fast food. All righty. Okay. So this old couple, right? They go into this restaurant and they get a small burger and French fries. And they go sit down at their usual table um, so that they can eat that. Now, the um, the guy, the man um, ends up, this is a heterosexual couple. Sorry, I should have specified. Um, but the but the man sits down and, you know, eats his, um, eats some of the burger and the French fries. And there's this person who comes up to them and they're like, and they offer to buy them a separate meal. And the lady who was not eating the burger and fries declined. And this person who, of course, is trying to do this good deed and trying to make sure that both of them are fed keeps going, well, why? What do you mean? Like, why don't you, you know, like, I'm, I'm happy to buy you a separate meal. Like, it's, it's really okay. Like, you know, this is a very small meal that you guys are sharing. And the lady says, oh, well, the reason is, is because I'm waiting on the teeth. Anyone get it? Waiting on the teeth. What is happening? What? What? They're sharing dentures. Oh, no. (laughs) Stephanie. Oh, no. First of all, these jokes get longer and longer. It's just turning into like weird story time. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Anyway, that's my joke for the week. And I will work on making them shorter next time per Michelle's request. (laughs) That way, you know. Complaints about the disorganized nature of this podcast and terrible joke telling, as always, can be sent to podcast at ndrn.org. Jack, tell them, tell the people how they can follow us on social media. You can follow us at NDRN Advocates on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, you can also follow us at National Disability Rights Network on LinkedIn. Until next time, folks. <laughs>